This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, before we get to the show, I want to tell you about a podcast from TED called Work Life with Adam Grant. It's a show that takes you inside the minds of some of the world's most unusual professionals. This week, how to befriend your rivals, what we can learn about friendly competition from Olympic skiers, elite marathoners, and food truck vendors. You can find Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So a couple months ago, a 911 operator in Lafayette, Indiana, got a pretty unusual phone call. 911. Hi, um, I had a really bad day and um, I just have tons of homework. Fortunately, it was a quiet day there, so the operator kept talking to the caller. It was a kid who was stressed out about math. So what are you what are you learning in math? What's so difficult? Fractions. Is there a problem you want me to help you with? Yeah, um, what's three-fourths plus one-fourth? And eventually? So what's three plus one? Four. So then four over four is what? One. Yeah, good job. I'm sorry for calling you, but I really need help. You're fine. We're always here to help. Okay, so we don't recommend calling 911 about a challenging math problem. But most of us have struggled with math before. And at some point, you might have even said, I'm just not a math person. So today on the show, we're going to dig into some of the myths we tell ourselves about math. Why so many of us are afraid of it or even hate it. And why we should think about rewiring the way we think about it. Because math is woven into the patterns of the universe. It allows us to understand big ideas. And in a way, it's kind of beautiful. I actually do see the beauty in math, and I see it in so many ways because it can literally change your life if you embrace it. It can take you from one place, change your economics, change your family, change how you see the world and how you interact with it. And I just find it so beautiful. This is Felicia Jones. She's a former computer scientist for the U.S. Navy. So I think it's fair to say that you're pretty good at math. Like, it, it, you can handle math pretty well. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Not late at night, but I'm pretty good. <laughs> and and I, I, is it fair to say that you kind of like it? I do like it. Math is so much fun to me. <laughs> and I actually quit my job and started money coaching with people. And that's when I came, um, happened upon this idea that some people don't think they're good at math. And that kind of thinking tends to start pretty young. And Felicia's noticed that oftentimes the kids who think they're bad at math are girls. So she decided to do something about it. Here's more from Felicia Jones on the TED stage. Did you know that 15 is the exact age a girl loses interest in math? And little does this 15-year-old know that she's kicked off a domino effect of companies, organizations, institutions and governments, even dining room conversations, asking one simple question. How do we get more girls interested in math? Now, I've been a part of these conversations over the last few months and had some heated debates with friends. And what I've realized is that no one has an answer. And this is kind of sad to me because I see the world through math colored glasses and I can see that it can take you anywhere that you want to go. And This is why I care. And you might be saying, okay, Felicia, that's a good idea. Yay, math. Let's all get on board. And you might be saying in the back of your mind, like, why do I really care? Here's why you care. Because Katherine Johnson was a 15-year-old girl who later became a woman and who was encouraged by her parents, and she helped us to get to the moon. 
<laughs> Patricia Bath was a 15-year-old girl who later pursued medicine, and because she liked to tinker, she created a device that corrected cataracts so people could have vision. But there's a 15-year-old girl that might be sitting next to you or in your house right now that saw her parents go through the Great Recession and never fully recover and is sitting on an idea that can change how we manage finances, but she's about to close the book on it because she's not getting the one thing that we can do, and that is support. Now, we know it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a community of hardcore supporters who give a damn to make sure a young girl stays encouraged and has confidence to pursue a career in math. So you have a very simple, elegant idea to start to change this paradigm, which I love. It's so simple. It's a big idea. What is it? To explain what it is. I want us to tell every girl, every woman in our life that she is great at math and look them in the eye, even if they start getting that little cringe where they say, no, I'm not great at it. I don't like numbers. I try to tell people, stop. You are actually really good at math. We just need to reprogram you. Yeah, I mean, people, like many, many people and many kids think that they they just don't have a math brain, right? They either do or they don't. And what it sounds like what you're saying is that's not the way to talk about this. It's that everybody has a math brain. Some people are going to take more, you know, take to it more easily or faster, but that everybody actually can understand this like anyone in, can, le- can learn a language. Yes, anyone can learn how to do math. We just need to make sure we don't discourage people from learning math. And no, not everyone is going to end up like uh, a Katherine Johnson and doing math to get us to the moon. But even with some of the basic um, ideas, we need to just make sure that people know that they're great at it. Because I truly believe that when people know that they're good at something, they will have the confidence to pursue some of these careers that are out there that are running our world. I mean, technology, science, um, engineering is running our world. It can really change um, how we interact with it if there are no women around in technology. That's kind of scary for me. You know what's at risk, that if you don't do something, that if we don't do something, we run the risk of women being unwanted when it comes to the future innovation that can change our world. Are you willing to risk that? For every woman that says that she's not great at math, I want you to make sure she stands on her two feet and you look her in the eye and you say, yes, you are, and I believe in you. For every 15-year-old that's about to close the book and say, you know what, math is not my thing, get her the support that she needs so that she can get better. For every 11-year-old that is jazzed about her coding club, her robotics team, here's the thing with those girls. They already know they're good at math. Our job is not to screw them up. (laughs) And from the moment that they are born, I just want you to do one simple thing. When they are in your arms, I just want you to remind them every day that all girls are great at math. That's Felicia Jones. She's a former computer scientist, and today... Felicia runs a business helping people manage their finances. You can find her full talk at ted.npr.org. When you were a kid, Mm -hmm. what what did you like about math? I think I understood a sense of math makes you powerful a little bit. Hmm. There's this famous story about Gauss, famous mathematician, I think 17th or 18th century. And the teacher gives everyone a problem to add up all the numbers from 1 to 100. And it's something you just do to make people miserable. Hmm. But Gauss is able to solve the problem very quickly. And the way he's able to do it is to organize the numbers in the way that works for him. He adds 1 and 100, and that's 101. He adds 2 and 99, that's 101. 3 and 98, that's 101. And he realizes that he just has a bunch of groups of 101, and it's a multiplication problem, way easier to do than just doing it in the order the teacher gave it to him. I think I had something similar where I felt like if I didn't like the problem I was given, I could try changing the numbers and see what would happen. This is Dan Finkel. He's a mathematician. I can still remember puzzles I did from the time I was 6 or 10 
where it was like, draw this shape using just a single line without lifting up your pencil. And I would work on it for so long, and I just was willing to be stuck, I guess. This is sort of the hallmark of being a mathematician is you don't mind being stuck. Hmm. But if you're talking about, like, when did I really see mathematics as a beautiful subject, I did go to a math camp the summer after my ninth grade year, and that was the time where I really saw the beautiful math that most people don't get to see until college or graduate school. Hmm. And my first question was, why has no one shown me this before? Before Dan got his Ph.D., he was a teacher. And during that time, he noticed a fundamental problem with the way math is taught at school. We essentially give answers before we give questions. We say, here's how you handle this problem, and I want to make sure you do it so you never get into trouble and never make a mistake. And what we don't do is start with the question and actually allow people to say, oh, that seems interesting. I should be able to do that. There's something strange going on, and now I want to know. Our main problem is we just think of math as the static body of facts rather than an experience. You must have come across kids who said they didn't like it or they, they weren't good at it. Absolutely. Well, a lot of people think they don't like math. So part of my job is to show them that they're wrong. And so what I try to do is give them a different experience of math Something that I would consider an authentic mathematical experience or puzzle or something that invites them to play in a mathematical way. And it sounds like that would be watering it down, but actually that is an experience of mathematics that is more rigorous and more akin to what mathematicians actually do. (laughs) And what you find is even the people who think they don't like it start to see that there is something in there that resonates with them. Dan Finkel picks up his idea from the TED stage. So if you are a teacher or a parent or anyone with a stake in education, I offer these five principles to invite thinking into the math we do at home and at school. Principle one, start with a question. The ordinary math class begins with answers and never arrives at a real question. Here are the steps to multiply, you repeat. Here are the steps to divide, you repeat. We've covered the material, we're moving on. What matters in this model is memorizing the steps. There's no room to doubt or imagine or refuse. So there's no real thinking here. If I rush to an answer, I will have robbed you of the opportunity to learn. Thinking happens only when we have time to struggle. And that is principle two. It's not uncommon for students to graduate from high school believing that every math problem can be solved in 30 seconds or less. And if they don't know the answer, they're just not a math person. This is a failure of education. We need to teach kids to be tenacious, to persevere in the face of difficulty. The only way to teach perseverance is to give students time to think and grapple with real problems. Everybody needs to work on math to understand it. Everybody is eventually challenged by mathematics. And we build mathematicians by actually giving students time to exercise their curiosity, to try things out, to think things through. Because without that kind of productive struggle, no real learning takes place. When we come back in just a moment, we'll hear more from Dan on principles three, four, and five, and on rethinking our approach to math. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. 
Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the power of math. So we just heard mathematician Dan Finkel describe two out of his five principles on how to rethink math education. So a question's posed, students get time to struggle, and eventually they come up with something and they ask, is this right? And then what? Well, so the third principle is you are not the answer key. And this is tricky because rightness and wrongness does matter in mathematics, but the current kind of problematic state of mathematics education is partly one that has come about because we are obsessed with right answers. And if all you care about is if the answer is right or not, then it's very easy to not worry if the students understand. All you care about is, could we get them to write the right number down on the paper? And students are geniuses at this Mm. because they've learned that their teachers care about answers. Their teachers know the answers. All they need to do is read the teacher and see when they show them that the answer is correct. And we need to actually just get away from this obsessive compulsion to say all that matters is the answer and whether it's right or not and get into a situation where we say, more important to me is how you're thinking about it. Hmm. There are sometimes moments where a student has a wrong answer, but a brilliant idea, an idea that is worth exploring and developing. And there are also times when a student has a right answer and yet maybe they arrived at it in a way that didn't show us anything new. By refusing to be the answer key, you create space for this kind of mathematical conversation and debate. And this draws everyone in. After all, where else can you see real thinking out loud? Students doubt, affirm, deny, understand. And all you have to do as the teacher is not be the answer key and say yes to their ideas. And that is principle four. Now, this one is difficult. What if a student comes to you and says, two plus two equals 12? You've got to correct them, right? And it's true, we want students to understand certain basic facts and how to use them. But saying yes is not the same thing as saying you're right. You can accept ideas, even wrong ideas, into the debate and say yes to your students' right to participate in the act of thinking mathematically. So what we're really trying to do in all this is give students ownership over their own mathematical thinking. And make sure they have a place at the table of mathematical thought. We want to make sure that they are welcome there and that they know that you value their right to participate in this process. I mean, the idea, I guess, is math shouldn't feel intimidating. Right. I mean, it shouldn't feel like it belongs to somebody else. Like, when you do math, you shouldn't feel like you're going into a room where all the furniture is covered with plastic sheets and you're not allowed to be in there. It should feel like this is your place, that you're allowed to break things, you're allowed to question, you're allowed to put your own mark on things, and there's a place for you to do that. But allow me to take this a step further. How do you actually know that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 12? What would happen if we said yes to that idea? This is how new math gets invented. It takes courage to say, what if 2 plus 2 equals 12, and actually explore the consequences. That courage led to some of the greatest breakthroughs in history. All it takes is a willingness to play. And that is principle five. Mathematics is not about following rules. Parents, if you want to know how to nurture the mathematical instincts of your children, play is the answer. I mean, could you make the argument that we're, you know, wired to be open and interested in math from an early age? Yeah, I would, and I do make that argument. I think that human beings are fundamentally pattern-seeking creatures, and mathematics is all about pattern and structure and finding order and placing order on a sometimes disorderly world. If you spend time with two and three and four and five and six-year-olds, They are constantly organizing, sorting, counting, structuring, doing this work that is fundamentally mathematical work because they feel it empower them. This is, I think, very much a natural human instinct. I mean, I've seen that with my own children, right? From when when they were little kids, counting to 100 and then... You know, counting to 500, just sitting there for like forever, counting to 500 or, 
you know, are asking questions about what's bigger, this or that, or yeah. um, it is true that numbers, they're a prism through which they see the world, certainly early yeah. in life. Yeah, I think that it's just such a rich world to explore. And it's, I think, such a pleasure that young kids are just drawn to that. We don't need to teach that. We just need to nurture it so it's still there. Because the people who end up becoming the great mathematical thinkers and scientists and engineers really have that same sense of wonder and same sense of kind of creative delight. It's not that it came out of nowhere. It's that they just didn't lose it and it got nurtured and grew along the way. Okay. Aside from obviously wanting kids to to love numbers and math, um, you also argue in your talk that there are real world consequences when you know when people don't have math literacy. Oh yeah. What's funny is there are so many places to look for where not knowing mathematics or not having a kind of numerical literacy can really undermine us. There is a certain amount of financial literacy, just numerical understanding you need to make it through the world. You need to be able to look at the newspaper. You see a graph, it is telling you something about the way the world is. It's nice to be able to actually understand what it's telling you. Or take out a loan, it's nice to know what that means about how much money you're going to be paying. And it's so easy to be tricked if you don't understand those things that it really it puts you in danger, I think, if you are afraid of math. That's mathematician Dan Finkel. He's the founder of the consulting business Math for Love. You can see his full talk at TED.com. I definitely, when I was going through school, uh, had no joy or delight in mathematics. In fact, I was one of those kids who kind of just... I survived mathematics. This is Eddie Wu. But I certainly didn't ever experience it as a really positive, like, oh, wow, this is a subject to be enjoyed and appreciated. Um, it was really far away from my mind all the way through high school. But Eddie, he actually ended up becoming the one thing he never thought he'd be, a math teacher. It's really a testament to how my own teachers changed my own life. I, I turned up at university with the full intent to become an English and history teacher. I went so far as to have written that on my enrollment form. But it was at university, through some of the educators whom I met there, that I discovered there's we don't have enough mathematics teachers hmm. and educators in our schools, really in any level. And when I heard about this, suddenly all these pieces kind of fell into place for me because I realised, oh... Maybe this is not just about me and my own experience of a subject. This is about something which is shaping our society. We've got, if we went out on the street today, Guy, and we asked 10 people, do you like mathematics? <laughs> I think nine of them would tell us no. Yeah. And that would probably be on a good day. I think yeah. on a bad day, 10 would tell us no. We'd have to get further than that to get to the first person who actually likes it. And this is the effect that this shortage of skilled and passionate and engaged mathematics educators, that's the consequence of that shortage in our culture and society. And I thought, I've, I want to be an educator to make a difference in people's lives. If this is where the need is, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole. You know, there's a universal reality and truth to this subject that humanity has been fascinated with hmm. uh, for centuries, for millennia. And so I got to sort of stumble upon that, you know, really by accident and realize, wow, there's a reason why mathematicians describe mathematics in these incredible terms. They describe it as elegant and it has this austere beauty. It was as though... Guy, you and I, we've kind of been born into this world where no one likes music. They actually loathe it because it's something that they get forced to do when they're young. Everyone really hates this particular style of music, but you have to go through learning how to write the notes and how to memorize the notes in sequence so you can recite them in a, in a time-pressured assessment task. And then, thank goodness, after 13 years of all compulsory music, we all just escape it and we're very glad that we survived having never actually listened to music ourselves. That's a terrible way to describe a world, but that's the world we live in because that's how people think of mathematics. Here's more from Eddie Wu on the TED stage. I used to believe that maths was about rote learning inscrutable formulas to solve abstract problems that didn't mean anything to me. 
But at university, I began to see that mathematics is immensely practical and even beautiful. That it's not just about finding answers, but also about learning to ask the right questions. It gradually dawned on me that mathematics is a sense. Mathematics is a sense, just like sight and touch. It's a sense that allows us to perceive realities which would be otherwise intangible to us. Now, I want to show you a mathematical reality that I guarantee you've seen before, but perhaps never really perceived. It's been hidden in plain sight your entire life. This is a river delta. It's a beautiful piece of geometry. Now, when we hear the word geometry, most of us think of triangles and circles. But geometry is the mathematics of all shapes. And this meeting of land and sea has created shapes with an undeniable pattern. It has a mathematically recursive structure. Every part of the river delta, with its twists and turns, is a micro version of the greater whole. So I want you to see the mathematics in this. But that's not all. There's a mathematical reality woven into the fabric of the universe that you share with winding rivers, towering trees, and raging storms. These shapes are examples of what we call fractals as mathematicians. Fractals get their name from the same place as fractions and fractures. It's a reference to the broken and shattered shapes we find around us in nature. Now, once you have a sense for fractals, you really do start to see them everywhere. A head of broccoli, the leaves of a fern, even clouds in the sky. Like the other senses, our mathematical sense can be refined with practice. It's just like developing perfect pitch or a taste for wines. You can learn to perceive the mathematics around you with time and the right guidance. When people ask you a version of, uh, you know, what am I going to do with this? Like, when am I ever going to use math? Uh, what do you say? Yeah, it's there's such a deep and profound connection between all the mathematics that I learn and that I teach to my students and literally their everyday lives. I think we need to understand that mathematics is so much more than numbers. Uh, in fact, you know, if we go back to the, because I'm such a, an English nerd, I love etymology and where words come from. And if yeah. you th dig into where the word mathematics comes from, literally, it just means understanding. And that is as broad as the universe that we live in, the cosmos. You know, biology is the study of living things. Chemistry is the study of substances and materials. Physics is the study of matter and movement. But mathematics is the study of patterns, which are literally everywhere. Now, what does this mean in our everyday lives? Well, we are doing that yeah. every hour of every day. Uh, we are looking out at the world and we are, I, I'm just thinking about, okay, when I get in my car and I drive home. You know, I'm sitting in this traffic and thinking about how to get home. I'm thinking about all the paths that I can take, which one is going to be the fastest, the most efficient so I can see my kids sooner. Um, all of that, you're calculating, you're thinking logically in your mind. Uh, it, it goes to my perception of the world. When I look out at a tree or at a rainbow, mm -hmm. I don't just want to, you know, let this, these pieces of beauty pass me by. What it means to be human is actually to marvel at this universe around us and to say, wow, there's a reason why rainbows are round. Why they're, you know, when you see a rainbow after rain, it looks yeah. like a semicircle, you know, you can yeah. see it, you know, hitting the horizon. Sure. But if you're lucky enough um, and in the right place at the right time, if you're in the sky or on a mountain, you'll actually see that rainbow is not a semicircle. It's a complete full circle goes all the way around that's not a coincidence that's geometry that's beautiful what it means to be human is to appreciate that and say wow there's something to wonder at here and so for me you know when do i use mathematics uh, when do i not use mathematics the real question is do i know that i'm doing it when i am eddie i, I asked a version of this question to dan finkel but What's the danger of a society where people don't engage with math or, or don't have math competency or literacy? Um, I mean, do you think there are consequences? There are really 
severe consequences. And we've actually seen this uh, in our society today in so many ways I could illustrate this. First, can I play a really, really quick game with you guys? Of course. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. We're going to go back and forth. Okay. And we're going to say numbers. Okay. The goal is either you or me is going to say the number 23. Okay. okay? And whoever says the number 23, they're the winner. Okay. That's the goal. Now, Guy, I'll let you go first. I want you to choose a number between one and four. Three. Three. I'm going to add a number to that. And it's always going to be between one and four. Okay. okay? So I'm going to say, I'm going to add one to that. So you said three. Mm -hmm. That means I say four. It's your turn now. So I'm going to add uh, a four. Uh, I said four. So it's it's eight now? Yep. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say two. So ten. And I'm going to say four. Fourteen. Okay. No worries. I'm going to say four now. So that means we're up to 18. Yep. What would you like to say now, guys? <laughs> One. <laughs> now I've I'm going to make a bet. We're going to bet you laughed because you you realized <laughs> took you about seven seconds, uh, which is not bad, guy. Um, now I won't I won't give you the full explanation here, but how did I win that? I knew something about patterns underneath that game, which you didn't know. Yeah. And so I could take advantage of that fact. And, you know, in this case, what's the harm? Oh, I win. No big deal, right? But when you don't know what's going on mathematically underneath something, and increasingly today, Guy, our world is built on and is run by algorithms that have been mathematically designed by people and are hidden from view. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're scrolling through your social media feed, you're not thinking that there's mathematics happening underneath there. When you order something online and there's recommended stuff on the side for what people like you guys have purchased these as well, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about there's a formula doing that. But mathematics is underneath all of those things, guiding all of those people's decision making. Mm-hmm. And as I've just demonstrated, if you're not aware of that, Someone can use that in a really malicious way. And people have used that in really malicious ways. And so, you know, from a negative point of view, what are the consequences of us having a a mathematically illiterate general population? Um, They're huge. There's people who are having the wool pulled over their eyes and they don't even know it. But at the same time, I think we're missing a part of who we are as human beings. This is what I was sort of getting at in the talk. Can you imagine if we walked around all day with our eyes closed? Can you imagine if we went into the world ignoring our senses? We have our senses because they're a wonderful way to understand and appreciate the world. So not only are there really negative consequences, but there are really positive things that we miss out and that I want people to be able to feel and experience. And that, for me, is a really fundamental reason. I think mathematics should be something everyone embraces and learns. That's Eddie Wu. He's a high school math teacher in Sydney, Australia. He also has his own channel on YouTube, which, of course, is all about math. You can see Eddie's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the beauty of math. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines understands the support small businesses need. Every day we get the privilege of helping people to recover from the unexpected, realize their dreams, and help manage the risk of everyday life. And for small business owners, we help them to think about all the things that are necessary so that they can continue to run their businesses successfully without interruption. As a business owner myself, I first reflect back to the experiences that I have. So we look at their liability, we look at their retirement, we look at the interruption coverage, everything that they need in order to continue to operate efficiently. Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about math. 
what if the key to understanding math doesn't actually come down to whether you're a math person, but instead depends on the way you're introduced to math as a kid? So, uh, Masha, first of all, please introduce yourself. Tell me your name. Sure. My name is Masha Gershman. And what do you do? I am the director of outreach for the Russian School of Math. Tell me, what what is the Russian School of Math? How do you describe it? Um, So RSM, or the Russian School of Math, is an after-school math enrichment program for kids in grades K through 12. And for us, math isn't kind of this collection of concepts or skills. It's actually a tool of mental development. And everything that we do, the whole way that we teach, really stems from that base idea. The Russian School of Math was founded here in the U.S. by Masha's mother, Inessa. But the idea behind it came from Inessa's own experience growing up. Here's more from Masha Gershman on the TED stage. From the 1950s through the 1980s, my parents were growing up in the Soviet Union. In the midst of the space age, they needed to grow a generation of minds who could out-innovate and out-create the United States. Early development of abstract thinking was vital. A core belief in Soviet culture is that a child's potential is not preset at birth. The mind could be developed. So acclaimed mathematicians and psychologists and scientists began to build a system of education that would develop minds who could thrive in the world of the unknown. And what these academics uncovered is that math is the best tool to serve that development. The next question was how. How could you teach math in such a way that a child could look at a problem in which the concepts, skills, and techniques involved were unclear and approach it like a puzzle? So how did they come up with an approach or a concept that would actually do that? Um, So, I mean, I think that it was based on a lot of kind of different tenets that existed um, at the time. So they basically started to introduce high-level abstract concepts early that would very quickly build into algebra, but kids obviously didn't realize that they were learning algebra. Um, Kids are profound thinkers, even in toddlerhood. Um, For for years, they're able to kind of uh, abstract from the world around them and understand and experiment. And then for some reason, when they hit kindergarten, our perspective shifts and we think that we have to kind of break everything down into bite-sized pieces and not overwhelm them. But basically, the Soviet methodology stems from the idea that it's actually the opposite. Kids are not only ready and already thinking this way, but they're actually more adept at learning these concepts and becoming fluent in them because their minds are so flexible and so malleable. So I think that was that was one big thing and one big difference. Um, the second is this idea of environment. Um, and this was something that I think permeated through not only the classroom, but also Soviet culture, where my parents always say that the winners of math Olympiads in Russia were the rock stars. They were the people that kids looked up to. Um, And there was this kind of this fervor of mathematical culture. There were math circles and math magazines. And basically, knowing math, fluency in math was cool. So the assumption from the beginning was... Every child has the potential to be great at math. We just have to teach them in the right way. Yeah, every child has the potential um, to be fluent in math. Um, And this is something that my mom always repeated when she came to the United States. She couldn't understand why people were so comfortable admitting that they're not math people or not fluent in math, but no one would ever admit that they can't read. To her, the two were, were the same. Many people point to the various Soviet firsts, first satellite, first dog in space, first man in space, as a testament to the success of this system of math education. But I don't really think that's fair. These were the achievements of a small collection of great minds. A better proof of concept, if you will, was the experience of Soviet immigration. Hundreds of thousands of people fled the Soviet Union before its collapse. My parents, among them, Suddenly, they were forced to navigate an entirely new world, entirely alone. For these immigrants, math was a lifeline. A few years after emigrating from Belarus to Boston, my mother came home from work and saw my brother working on his math homework and saw that he couldn't add 
two fractions with two different denominators. She saw that uh, not only could he not do this, but he also emphatically insisted it was impossible and refused to continue the question further. This was a turning point for her, and she decided to leave her job to tutor him in math. And soon after, she and a fellow teacher partnered to open the Russian School of Math, an after-school math enrichment program. I mean, here, here's the thing, right? When we think about math education today, like what you're describing, if you went to somebody in Russia now and you said, hey, we have this radical concept we're introducing in the United States, they would say, what are you talking about? This is totally normal, right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's radical for the United States, but it's not radical in general. Um, in a traditional American public school system, basically what happens is kids learn very basic material all throughout elementary school. And then suddenly incredibly complex material is thrown at them. And then kids are basically left to think, OK, well, if I can't make that mental leap, that must just mean that I'm not good at math. So I give up. I think it's really a disservice that we do to them by by not introducing them to these kind of higher level concepts because they're capable of it, they're better at it, um, and the earlier you start, you know, the the more fluency they develop. Such that once they hit middle school and high school, these things are just a natural progression. They're not hard. That's Masha Gershman. She's the director of outreach at the Russian School of Math. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Today on the show, ideas about the beauty of math and the people who love it. And for eight years, at 3.20 in the morning, Adam Spencer would roll out of bed and go to work. Three hours every day, six o'clock to nine o'clock, news, traffic, weather, the very best music, and a healthy serve of mathematics to get you on your way. Adam hosted the most listened to morning radio talk show in Australia. And every chance he'd get, he'd talk about math. Darwin, sunny and 32 degrees. That's two to the power of five. <laughs> in 1996, Adam was actually working toward a doctorate in pure mathematics when he won a stand-up comedy contest for a national radio station. He thought working in radio was a better idea at the time, so he dropped out. I'd like to say in a room of randomly selected people, I'm a maths genius. In a room of maths PhDs, I'm as dumb as a box full of hammers. These days, Adam makes his living writing and talking about math because Adam Spencer is one of those people who's always loved numbers. Here's more from Adam on the TED stage. I cast my mind back when I was in second grade. As we came up towards lunchtime, our teacher, Ms. Russell, said to the class, what do you want to do after lunch? I've got no plans. It was an exercise in democratic schooling, but we were only seven. And after a while, someone made a particularly silly suggestion and Ms. Russell patted them down with that gentle aphorism, that wouldn't work. That'd be like trying to put a square peg through a round hole. Now, I wasn't trying to be smart. I wasn't trying to be funny. I just politely raised my hand. And when Ms. Russell acknowledged me, I said, but miss, surely if the diagonal of the square is less than the diameter of the circle, well, the square peg will pass quite easily through the round hole. <laughs> It'd be like putting a piece of toast through a basketball hoop, wouldn't it? Do you think that you just had that switch in your brain that was like, yes, math, I love it, it's awesome? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really difficult question because with me it goes back so far that I don't even remember if I had to try all that hard, but I do remember that having loved it, I did more and more. Huh. Like practically anything, it is a practice thing. And because it's a, a subject with that finite, correct, incorrect sort of line, it is the thing where to an extent you can teach yourself. You know if you're getting it right. You, you're not teaching yourself bad habits. And I just loved it more than anyone else I knew. I fell in love with mathematics from the earliest of ages. I explained it to all my friends. Maths is beautiful. It's natural. It's everywhere. Numbers are the musical notes with which the symphony of the universe is written. Today, I want to show you one of those musical notes. A number so beautiful, so massive, I think it will blow your mind. Today we're going to talk about prime numbers. 
prime numbers, let's just remind everybody what a prime number is. Okay, so six is not prime. Right. Because we can break it down into six equals two times three. Seven is prime because seven is one times seven, but you can't break it into any smaller multiplying building blocks. So the primes are the sort of building blocks that all the other numbers come out from. If I throw you a number, if I say eh, 26, well, it turns out that's not prime, it's nope. 2 times 13. Okay, what about 29? Yep. That is prime. You can't break it down. So every number has to be prime or composite. Primes go on forever. There, There is no final biggest prime number. A beautiful mathematician called Euclid proved that thousands of years ago. So it makes sense. At any given time, there must be a largest prime number that we know about. And my TED Talk back in 2013 was the history of the largest prime numbers we've detected. Initially, it was all just humans doing phenomenal things with their brains. And I was going to say pen and paper, not even pen. You know, quill. Quill, yeah. And ink and chalk and things like that. With equations pulling down that are just unbelievable to think a human mind could come up with free of any device. This is the great Swiss mathematician Leonard Euler. In the 1700s, other mathematicians said he is simply the master of us all. Euler discovered at the time the world's biggest prime, 2 to the 31 minus 1. It's over 2 billion. You think that's big? We know that 2 to the power of 127 minus 1 is a prime number. It's an absolute brute. Look at it here. 39 digits long. Proven to be prime in 1876 by a mathematician called Lucas. Word up, L-Dog. The massive prime numbers all follow a cute little formula. I'll give you a really easy example. Sure. Let's take two and let's multiply two by itself three twos. Two times two is four, times two gets us to eight. Let's take away one from that. So we had two times two times two, take away one, is seven, which just happens to be a prime number. Yep. All the massive prime numbers we've ever detected are of the form two multiplied together heaps of times, take away one. And the latest one that we uncovered in December of last year, take the number two, write down not one, two, not three twos like I had earlier, write down 82,589,993 twos. <laughs> you end up with a 24 million digit long number. Wow. And we know that single number is prime as confidently as we know the number seven is prime. I just think that's just mind-numbingly beautiful. My laptop at home was looking through four potential candidate primes myself as part of a networked computer hunt around the world for these large numbers. The discovery of that prime was similar to the work people are doing in unravelling RNA sequences, in searching through data from SETI and other astronomical projects. We live in an age where some of the great breakthroughs are not going to happen in the labs or the halls of academia, but on laptops, desktops, in the palms of people's hands who are simply helping out for the search. But for me it's amazing because it's a metaphor for the time in which we live when human minds and machines can conquer together. So right now, as we're sitting here talking on the radio, you've got a computer in your house that's just like, you know, looking for prime numbers? Yep. There's a project called GIMPs. Their more technical mathematical name is Merzen, M-E-R-S-E-N-N-E, from a guy who uh, researched them, a, a monk back in the uh, 1600s of all things. And so GIMPs is the Great Internet Merzen Prime Search. Anyone can do this. You take your laptop and download the GIMPs software, it will give you a candidate prime, and in the background, while your computer's doing nothing else, it will just search. Now, it would take four to six weeks before it comes back and says yes or no, and you're almost always going to be disappointed and told no. But if you think about the amount of supercomputing power that is just sitting on people's desks, in their man caves, in the office at work over the weekend, on their phones, just unused. There are problems out there we want solved, and the GIMPs 
Prime search is just a great little nerdy example of that. All right. So there are people looking for these monster uh, prime numbers. And the, and the latest one was discovered by this guy, Patrick uh, Patrick LaRouche, right? Yeah, LaRouche is the latest one, yes. What, what's the point? Like, what's a practical application of a prime number? Big-sized prime numbers, 20 digits long, those sort of things, underpin all internet security. The reason that you can use your credit cards online, etc., is to do with algorithms based on very large prime numbers. Mm. And uh, the best sort of practical application for large numbers like this is there a great way to test the speed and accuracy of potential new computer chips. If my laptop's working on a Pentium 15BZ, and I think that's the greatest chip in the world, and you say, well, I've come up with a double Pentium 13X, Okay, well, let's ask them the same simple question with the same eight lines of code, and let's let the computers go and decide for us. Now, if your one comes back in only three weeks and it solves something that took my computer five weeks, you've got yourself a really fast, impressive new computer chip. So speed and accuracy testing of computer chips these days, well worth it. And it's also just another small piece in the deeper puzzle. One of the reasons we're so attracted to prime numbers is they're so basic, they're so fundamental, we know nothing about them. Some of the most famous problems, unsolved problems in the history of mathematics are to do with the distribution of prime numbers, the amount of prime numbers you have after a certain point and things like that. So any small step towards understanding them more, I think, is a good thing. That's Adam Spencer. He's the first ever ambassador of science and mathematics for the University of Sydney in Australia. You can find his full talk at TED.com. is a wonderful thing Math is a really cool thing So get off your ass, let's do some math Math, 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 math Hey, thanks so much for listening to our show on math this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org and to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, Melissa Gray, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.